Welcome everybody to the Gray Zone. Thanks for tuning in. Very excited to be doing this live stream today here with Max Blumenthal, editor of the Gray Zone. And we are going to be talking about this unfolding, whatever you want to call it, crisis or just drama in Ukraine with every day the U.S. giving us some new euphemism on a suggestion that Russia is about to invade. First it was imminent, then it was maybe before the Olympics. Now the latest one from CNN, I'll just read it to you, is U.S. intelligence indicates Russia clearly advancing their ability to invade, whatever that means. So to help us make sense of what's going on, we're very fortunate to be joined today by Dmitry Polyansky. He is the deputy Russian ambassador to the United Nations. Ambassador, hello. Thank you very much. Thank you, Aaron. Thank you, Max. I just have trouble uh, in understanding what does it mean uh, in English. My English is not good enough uh, to advance its uh, capabilities. <laughs> to advance its ability to invade, yeah. My yeah. God. Well, we're all God. left puzzling as to what they're trying Such creative, creative people we have. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This is all ridiculous, of course. And, uh, well, we learn each and every day something about ourselves, about our alleged plans to attack, to invade. And this comes to a total surprise to us. And this comes to a total surprise of Ukrainians as well, which is uh, especially strange. So it looks like only the, the Americans are sure of, of something, but they don't share this information neither with us nor with the Ukrainians. So I don't know who can de-escalate this uh, situation. Uh, I think only those who have escalated it. And in fact, it's not us. These are Americans first and foremost. So let us uh, ask them to de-escalate. It's very easy. It sounds like their intelligence on Russian intentions is better than yours, Ambassador. That has always been the case. But, you know, speaking about U.S. or British intelligence uh, sometimes equals to a joke already nowadays. Well, I, I want to ask you about the difference between intelligence and propaganda because the, there's a real gray zone there. Uh, and I'll refer to comments by your colleague, Maria Zakharova, who is the always fiery spokesperson for Russia's foreign ministry. Uh, and she said the following uh, yesterday, I believe, the US and UK have pulled out a tool from their stash that they've been keeping for a good half century. And now they are waving it around like a club, supporting controlled hysteria through CNN, Bloomberg, and British tabloids, thereby influencing public opinion in their countries. And she called this war propaganda, uh, even asserting that this was a violation of international law. She also claimed that Russia does not use war propaganda. And you took her comments to tweet a reference to Tony Blair claiming Iraq had WMD. So it sounds like you and the official voice of the Russian foreign ministry are clearly stating that Russia has no plans whatsoever to make any incursion into what is considered Ukrainian territory. Is that is that correct? And what is so dangerous about the rhetoric that we're hearing in our media in the U.S.? Well, uh, you're absolutely right, Max. Uh, I, when, I, when I'm giving interviews to some uh, U.S. and British uh, sources, I always ask them to, to find me quotes uh, who from our politicians, uh, diplomats, uh, deputies, whoever, who has ever threatened Ukraine with aggression, who has said that we will attack they can't, of course, because no one did. The, the whole hype was uh, uh, was created and promoted uh, by, first of all, uh, U.S. authorities. Then the British uh, joined the tune. 
very eagerly and of course the mass media and uh, what's happening with mass mass media is really striking and it uh, just confirms our uh, assumption that we are living in a post-truth world where it's not important what's happening but it is very important how it is being presented so everybody is speaking about alleged uh, Russian plans to attack uh, some people even say that we should be sanctioned for these alleged plans to attack and I'm not I will not be surprised if these sanctions will take place actually will be introduced because this goes in the logic of our Western partners but nobody uh, nobody very few people really uh, give them uh, give uh, give themselves the possibility uh, to analyze it and to understand who is really threatening whom so the fact that we have a number of troops and by the way we never confirmed the figure of 100,000 it came out from some American sources and uh, it's very questionable but okay some number of troops yes we have them at the border uh, but not exactly at the border ready to attack they are in the places when they, where they usually are uh, the numbers can vary it happened before it may happen in the future because this is our sovereign territory and these these are our troops so we have the right to do so and uh, what uh, if uh, the um, uh, joint uh, training with uh, Belarusia is is mentioned, and this is the case now, uh, I can tell you that uh, these trainings take place from time to time, several times a year. And this one exactly uh, was not a surprise. Uh, we notified about it uh, several months ago. So it is a planned exercise of our joint uh, allied forces of Russia and Belarus. Nothing extraordinary. I remember the tweet of Aaron where he also uh, mentioned several several Google searches uh, with a uh, number of Russian troops uh, on, on the Ukrainian border which are very much similar to to what is now being promoted in the media and there was no fuss about it at that time so it happened before again we are not new to this kind of allegation but of course the scope of this allegation now is something re remarkable it has never been so and uh, I can only link it to the fact that uh, we uh, now addressed uh, uh, direct and clear uh, requ request and requirement to NATO and the United States in terms of long-term security guarantees. So this is in fact a kind of a small screen that is uh, being that is being placed there to camouflage uh, the real uh, intentions of the West, and uh, these inten intentions is just lack of desire to engage in any, in, in any uh, meaningful dialogue with Russia uh, on this issue. And this is very deplorable. Even if you read uh, the reports right now uh, about Russia, Russian contacts uh, with uh, other uh, international players, you will have the impression that the only thing that is being discussed is Ukraine. So President Biden called President Putin and they discussed Ukraine. President Macron came to discuss Ukraine, but this is not the case. If we if we if we refer to the readout from our side, you will see that Ukraine is only one tiny element of this puzzle, a very important one, of course, a very burning one, but not the most important. So the problem is much deeper uh, than that, than that, and the problem is very much rotten for many many years, and so that's why uh, we feel that the West in order to divert attention from, from this uh, burning problem, the problem of security guarantees, which is a bigger one, just chose to, to fan some kind of, uh, of, uh, of tension and uh, some kind of uh, hype around these alleged Russian plans to attack. And that's, that's how we see it, uh, actually. When you talk about security guarantees, can you specify that a bit more? What, aside from Ukraine, are the main issues that you want to see discussed with the U.S.? 
We actually want uh, the guarantees uh, that our interests will not be threatened uh, by the further by further expansion of NATO and by the placement of uh, of ammunition and uh, military infrastructure close to our borders. This is not something new, and the point of reference here is the famous uh, Munich uh, speech of uh, President Putin in 2007, where he actually highlighted all the problems that we will. We, that we were about to face uh, in the nearest future uh, in terms of European security, he just summed up uh, all our preoccupation on the fact that uh, the enlargement of NATO uh, didn't, uh, the planned enlargement at this stage, uh, didn't take into consideration uh, Russian uh, absolutely legitimate preoccupations about our security. And uh, NATO military infrastructure uh, would be brought uh, to our territory quite soon, close to our territory. And that was something that we uh, launched at that moment we said there is a problem guys let's sit down and think about it and let's talk about it but the nato response was very i would say strange so they first of all they almost admitted uh, ukraine and georgia uh, to their members the same year they also um, uh, you know that there was a military campaign military uh, military uh, operation in in georgia as a result of georgian provocation and Georgia was very, very much uh, uh, emboldened by NATO, by the prospect of NATO membership. And President Saakashvili made a very big mistake, which, uh, which actually, actually led to, the, uh, to Georgia uh, losing some parts of territory. So the, the whole logic of NATO and the U.S. response was absolutely contrary to the logic that we promoted, uh, that logic of dialogue and the logic of uh, listening to each other and uh, finding the way uh, to coexist and even to cooperate uh, in, in facing certain terrorist threats and, uh, and so on and so forth. So it was rejected. And what we, pro what we propose now is just to come to this point, to come to the moment when uh, Russia and NATO uh, forged an understanding on how they will deal with each other. And that was back in 1997. So we want to reinvigorate these principles that were enshrined in the basic NATO-Russia Act. And we think that uh, we can uh, carry them on even today. And a lot of damage that has been done uh, to our relations and to our perception of each other uh, can be avoided uh, if we really uh, st uh, stuck to this uh, understanding, basic understanding that was in the 1997. So it's just very primitively, but that's what we want. Our, by the way, our proposals are available on the Internet. We made them public and open our proposals for security treaties with U.S. and NATO. Well, we've actually heard uh, Jen Stoltenberg, the NATO Secretary General, he's actually in Colombia today because, uh, you know, Colombia is a North Atlantic uh, country in South America, which happens to border Venezuela. And it's a burgeoning democracy where hundreds of social leaders have been killed in the past year or so. Uh, and Stoltenberg from there has been saying uh, that NATO will offer some concessions. He's talking about transparency around um, missile launching locations, uh, rolling back some military exercises, and uh, negotiations on nuclear disarmament, uh, while accusing Russia of violating intermediate arms control treaties, intermediate range arms control treaties. Um, why are these supposed concessions by NATO or alleged concessions unacceptable? To Russia, um, or, or or are they a first step? 
I wouldn't call them concessions uh, because they are, first of all, long overdue. Secondly, uh, strangely enough, but these are the exact ideas, the exact proposals uh, to a large extent that we were promoting for many, many years uh, and uh, which we couldn't, uh, couldn't, couldn't, fi couldn't find an agreement with the Trump administration, for example, in terms of uh, missile control, the INF Treaty, all these things. And at that time, they were rejected. Now, all of a sudden, NATO gives us this as kind of a compromise, saying that this is kind of a very big concession on their part. But this is not enough. Uh, this is only superficial, and this will not uh, solve uh, the key problems that we have. And uh, the problems uh, that we have, they come from the enlargement of NATO, and they come from the fact that NATO doesn't want to take into account our legitimate concerns uh, that are also proceeding from the basic OEC documents that were signed uh, some years ago, uh, that no one can really really ensure uh, his or his security uh, at the expense of the others. And that's exactly the case in, in NATO expansion. So the dialogue should go much deeper than this. And what is very striking in this regard, uh, and my minister Lavrov uh, today mentioned it publicly, he said that we wrote after we received uh, initial uh, initial reply from the United States and NATO. We wrote uh, letters to individual member states uh, of, of NATO, asking them to explain to us how they are going to combine uh, the two principles that are enshrined in basic OEC documents. That first, first document, which is very widely cited by NATO, is the freedom of, uh, cho of choice of alliances. And the second one that I mentioned, that uh, no country can uh, can uh, implement its security uh, and seek its security at the expense of the security of the others. So that's exactly the second principle that we want to be clarified by each and every uh, member. And instead, we received very short replies from NATO, which we never asked about this. And what's more strange, from European Union, which is absolutely not a player in this field. So uh, this uh, was absolutely not uh, enough for us and uh, we rejected this approach. Uh, this is very formal and that's why we will repeatedly seek uh, uh, replies from each and every our neighbor, each and every member of the NATO because it's a question, it's an existential question, a question for our security and it goes much beyond the question of Ukraine, much beyond. Ukraine is only a crisis that is uh, looming as a result of the of the uh, absolute uh, irrelevance, absolute uh, ignoring of Russian uh, of Russian security concerns by NATO for many many years. So that's how it how it looks uh, from my perspective. I want to ask your response to two recent developments. First, you have the U.S. the Biden administration repeatedly accusing Russia of plotting a false flag attack inside of. Eastern Ukraine to justify a full-on invasion by Russia. But then you have also the U.S. withdrawing its staff from the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, these monitors who are inside Eastern Ukraine right now. I'm wondering if you could respond to both of those developments. Well, we are very much preoccupied by this development because, because actually, frankly, we don't care about the withdrawal of, uh, of embassy staff and personnel from Western countries from Kiev. This is bad for Ukraine, but we have nothing to do with this. It's their bilateral matter. But for monitoring mission of OEC, this is important because this is a mission that is uh, charged uh, and has the task to monitor all the developments. So, so if there is any 
any kind of provocation, any kind of false flag operation from whatever side, from the side of uh, of, of the rebels uh, and or from the side of uh, Ukrainian government, then it's up to OSCE to determine and to give to international community the uh, exact circumstances of this or that incident. And it may have very, very serious consequences, as you, as you might imagine. So we had the initial uh, initial information that indeed uh, US and some other countries decided to withdraw their personnel, which, uh, as we were, uh, we were afraid, could lead to some kind of dismantling of the work of the mission. And that was not the scenario which would be the optimal one in the current circumstances. But then we received reassurances from uh, OECE uh, that uh, the other members of the mission they are still in place and then they continue their functions and their operations. So it was just unilateral decision of several Western countries, which of course affected the capacities of the mission, but which do not prevent the mission from fulfilling its task. So we are still finding out uh, what exactly has happened and how vulnerable the mission has become. But uh, according even to the eyewitnesses in, in Donetsk, where the mission is based, they say that uh, a number of cars that went somewhere in the morning, returned back, and so the mission seemed to be operational, uh, at least from this point of view. Aaron, you had a uh, another question there? Uh, from the yeah, well, I, I'm curious, okay, so yeah. if the troops on Russia's border with Ukraine, or as you say, nothing out of the ordinary, or not meant for an invasion of Ukraine, I, I'm wondering what you think is uh, the U.S. aim here? W what is their aim in stoking this fear of a Russian invasion along with their accusations that you're planning a false flag? What are they after? Are they, is this about sabotaging the, Nor the Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline? Is this about renegotiating the Minsk Accords, which the Ukrainian government has complained about? Is this about just uh, justifying sanctions on Russia that both parties in Washington are clamoring for? What do you think, what's your sense of what the U.S. goal is here? Well, uh, my guess is that uh, it, it's really a smokescreen operation uh, for trying us to boil down our bigger security concerns to some kind of uh, minor minor issues related to Ukraine. Uh, they might seem not minor, but in terms of global security concerns of my country, they are definitely minor. Uh, this is one guess. The other guess might be very dangerous, potentially, is that really uh, maybe the United States or their allies uh, have in mind of some uh, provocation with the involvement of Ukrainian forces in the line of contact. And you know that uh, when we speak about Ukrainian forces, we do not uh, necessarily mean the Ukrainian army, uh, which may, might be under certain chain of command. But there are also uh, a lot of uh, nationalist uh, and far-right volunteers uh, which do not report to Kiev and they have their own commanders and they hold their own line of action. And it's very difficult to control the, these guys, even for Ukrainian government. So if there is a major provocation there, a large-scale provocation at the line of contact, then uh, there might be implications uh, because uh, President Putin was quite clear to mention that if there is a Ukrainian attempt to solve uh, the question of uh, Donbass uh, by military means, then we will not be idle. That was the clear indication from the very beginning that this is the red line and the West should respect this, this, this red line. So, of course, uh, Minsk agreements uh, remain uh, backbone for the settlement in the, of the crisis in the, um, in the east of Ukraine. 
and if they are dismantled then we are in uh, in uh, in uncharted waters nobody knows what will happen and the situation will be defrost uh, with all the dangerous uh, consequences so we would uh, definitely uh, not prefer this scenario and we appeal to our western colleagues uh, to concentrate not on creating hype about alleged russian plans but at uh, forcing ukraine to implement its clear uh, obligations under minsk agreements and uh, I, it's very difficult to to quote what kind of uh, steps were implemented by ukraine i i, I don't i can't do it though i am dealing with this issue so there is a lot to be done and there's the roadmap agreed by international community and on the 17th of uh, february we will have in the security council a discussion on exactly on the implementation of minsk agreements so we hope to attract the attention of our of our partners in the security council to this situation and to uh, uh, and we expect them to reconfirm that they are the only possible basis for the resolution of this crisis so ukraine should really pay attention uh, to to the implementation of this important uh, uh, roadmap and uh, plan instead of uh, creating problems and uh, trying to bypass it by by certain uh, by certain stunts the problem with minsk at least the way it's, it's portrayed publicly is that both sides interpret it differently the heart of it as i understand it which ukraine agreed to in 2015 is that the donbass demilitarizes but in return it gets some autonomy which then gives the Donbass essentially a veto over Ukraine joining NATO. But I'm wondering, Kiev has been complaining about the terms of Donbass. They don't they feel it was too favorable to the separatists. Would Moscow be open to seeing Minsk being renegotiated in, in any way? Uh, no, it's absolutely not the question of renegotiating Minsk because this was a very difficult uh, compromise that was achieved in 2015. It has certain circumstances behind it, but uh, this is a serious international document. And there are absolutely no reasons for any uh, renegotiations. Uh, the what is behind Minsk, you need to understand that the problem. This is a kind of an existential problem for the Ukraine. It's not about separatists in the east. It's the way Ukraine deals with the Russian-speaking population in general. Because what's happening now in this country, and what has been really the 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 source of all the problems after the Maidan, is real disregard of what people in the east and in the south want. So. It was a constant attack on Russian language, constant attack of, on their vision of history. Uh, it resulted in Ukraine losing Crimea. It resulted in Ukraine uh, almost losing the east of the country. Though Minsk agreement is a roadmap of how these regions can return back to Ukraine. It's not about giving to them the, the veto right as Ukrainians are putting this, because it's up to them and the Ukrainians to define what kind of, uh, what kind of autonomy they will enjoy. But the fact is that any decisions there, uh, according to Minsk agreements, and this is written uh, quite clearly, should be taken in direct dialogue with the representatives of Donetsk and Lugansk. So it's up to them to decide, together with Ukrainian authorities. And this roadmap uh, leads to elections in these territories, but with certain uh, conditions. It uh, also uh, implies amnesty, it implies uh, some other measures that are not being implemented, and of course the first and the most important one is a ceasefire and uh, the fact uh, that there will be no uh, heavy weaponry uh, near the line of contact. And this is also not being respected. Uh, so 
the, the, it's, I don't know with, with what to start uh, to, to, to tell you why what Ukraine doesn't implement in, in Minsk agreements, but it's not only about Donbass. It's, it's about the fact that this country should understand that uh, it should be tolerant and it should be uh, it should be open to the population, to the Russian-speaking population, which in fact uh, represents majority of, uh, of Ukrainian population, no matter how they try to deny it. And unless unless Ukraine uh, solves this issue in in a very uh, in a very profound way, uh, it, it it will face inevitably problems to survive as an independent country, regardless of what Russia does or doesn't do. It's because of its own population, which really feel that they do not belong to this society and that this, that this society and this, uh, these authorities do not represent uh, what they want. Well, on that point about the crackdown on people in Ukraine who speak Russian, who identify with Russia, I want to ask you, there was a recent article in Time magazine, and it quotes a uh, former official who was actually Zelensky's first national security advisor, his top national security aide. And he says that when Zelensky closed three opposition uh, television networks, pro you know, Russia-aligned television networks, back in early 2021, the U.S. cheered this move. But this Zelensky aide actually reveals that the U.S. didn't only cheer this move, but actually inspired it because he says that this crackdown on these television networks was conceived as quote a welcome gift to the Biden administration. And I'm just wondering your response to that and how much this crackdown on Russian allies. Uh, inside Ukraine, in your view, has contributed to the current atmosphere? Uh, first of all, Aaron, I did need to give you an update because yesterday another television uh, channel from their position was closed. Uh, so it, it brings the number to how many? Four or five? Uh, I lost count already. Uh, and also uh, we need to mention that the leader of the biggest opposition party, Mr. Medvedchuk, uh, is under arrest and uh, his, uh, his uh, back backers are being prosecuted simply for not rejecting the idea that Russia and Ukraine can live in peace and that uh, Russian language has some place in, in Ukraine, in Ukrainian society. So uh, th this, is all, this is all very important, all this, uh, all this crackdown. Uh, we, of course, uh, raise awareness of what's happening. We raise this issue at international forums. We raise this issue in OEC. And, uh, there are clear double standards, uh, as you might see. So the West, of course, doesn't want to, to notice it. Uh, it uh, pretends that everything that is not uh, supporting the official uh, line promoted by Ukrainian authorities is kind of a Russian asset and Russian propaganda. And you can, uh, you can fight it uh, with all the legitimate powers. So they clearly say that uh, they don't want even to to bother with this because this is this is something that russia promotes without providing any any evidence of course this is the case by the way not only in ukraine but in some of the baltic states in moldova in georgia so the moment some uh, some uh, outlet starts uh, thinking independently and asking uncomfortable question for for the powers for the authorities it immediately is labeled uh, russian propaganda and russian assets and uh, I, 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 I am sure that you know this situation not only in uh, in these countries but uh, in your own country as well. There are a lot of situations when uh, people uh, for saying certain certain things that are not to the liking of uh, of some uh, some uh, personal personalities uh, in power, they are also labeled uh, Russian uh, Russian assets and uh, whatever I don't know. 
you, you bet you know better so unfortunately in ukraine this is a very widespread uh, practice which is damaging to the country very much and which creates this city this uh, atmosphere of intimidation and uh, total fear uh, in the with the population and of course it doesn't contribute to the development of of democracy in this country I, it's, it goes without saying well let, let's stay on that topic a little bit and yeah in, in our country we do experience that but our stations don't get shut down possibly because we don't have the same broadcasting apparatus um and if they can't nail you for being a kremlin asset or a anti-semite or whatever they call you they'll just call you a racist uh as we see in the situation that the whole u.s media is focused on instead of the one that we're discussing right now which is the whole joe rogan affair it's very different in the u.s and i don't think it's well understood that in ukraine while it poses as a democracy people are actually jailed simply for being in opposition they're having their like tv stations are taken off air it's not just the character assassination that you would experience in the u.s it's very autocratic it's also a deeply corrupt country and i i i don't mean that in a I don't mean to besmirch the Ukrainian people, but I think this is a reason why uh, NATO membership is kind of a fantasy. Um, but I want to I want you to address uh, this clip. Um, I think it's worth playing it because it's been going around in US media a lot. And it relates to the issue that the Russian speaking population is facing. Um, it's essentially a propaganda piece that aired on NBC News and it looked very sympathetic to Ukrainians defending their country. Let's just watch it. Uh, it's 50 seconds long, and then we'll put it in proper context. And then I have a question. Full screen, about it. full screen it, Max. Yeah, I will. Are taking matters into their own hands. Just across from Russia, in the city of Mariupol, some Ukrainians are preparing. Basic training for the whole family, learning first aid to treat gunshot and shrapnel wounds, and weapons training on a 7.62 caliber AK-47 is Valentina Konstantinovskaya. The 79-year-old is a retired accountant and a great-grandmother. You're about my mother's age, and I can't picture my mother laying down on the concrete learning how to fire an assault rifle. Do you think you would actually be doing this? Yes, if Putin comes, I should be able to shoot. The threat is very serious, she says. And I think every person in our country should be able to shoot from the window or on the street if the enemy comes. Some communities are taking matters into their own hands. That's Just clip. across from Russia, in the city of Mariupol. Yeah, sorry, I played it uh, twice. But uh, yeah, and I don't know why Richard Engel brought up his own mother, I might shoot myself if I if my son was producing propaganda uh, at that so so shamelessly. Uh, because you know what you have here is an open display of the Azov Battalion's uh, badge on their uniforms. Uh, Angle doesn't seem to know that or that that would be a problem, and it is starting to seep into U.S. media that everyone has just produced propaganda for the Azov Battalion, but this has been a problem w with respect to the Donbass region because this is an element incorporated into the National Guard that does not respect the existence of Russian speakers. It's it, you know referred to as neo-Nazi often, but we can for sure agree that it does not respect 
a Russian-speaking population in its midst. And we interviewed Russell, Russell Bentley, who is an American fighting on the eastern side, uh, to get the temperature of the Russian-speaking population fighting on the front lines. And he said that they believe the Azov Battalion will commit genocide if they are allowed to have their way. So how does this factor in and what kind of pressure are they able to put on Zelensky, the f Jewish president of Ukraine? Well, uh, it's a very strange uh, situation uh, with all these clips and uh, we see a number of them in, in Western media. And uh, I, when I come, uh, when, when I visit some websites, I also see a sequence of these clips saying that Ukraine, uh, Ukrainian population, uh, women and children and uh, elderly are ready to, to, go, to take to the arms to defend their motherland against Russian invasion. And this creates kind of a picture for Western readers that uh, really there is a small independent freedom-liking country which is being oppressed by its huge and uh, totalitarian neighbor and so on and so forth. Maybe that's very much uh, to the liking of of, uh, of media outlets uh, in in the UK and the US, but it's absolutely not true. I think that uh, the things that uh, that were shown in this clip are very marginal because we have, of course, our own sources of information. It's not only news outlets. We have a lot of friends living in Ukraine still, and people-to-people -people contacts are quite good still between Russians and Ukrainians. I have my own sources there, and they say me that they tell me that the population is very much. Very, very much intimidated and that they are really very much at a loss uh, what to do and uh, that they are sick and tired uh, of all these all, all these uh, far-right uh, regiments and all these uh, policies that limit their right to using Russian language and to get education in Russian for their children. Uh, Ukrainians are very patient people, uh, but well, sometimes even their patience can be over at some at some point of time. So. I think that this is really testing uh, testing their patience, and uh, I wouldn't say that uh, the uh, the mood in in Ukraine, especially in eastern and so and uh, southern regions, are very much hostile to Russia, regardless of uh, all these years of uh, Maidan propaganda. So we feel it, uh, and uh, that's why. Well, I don't know, of course, who the, who the, who this woman is. Uh, I'm, I'm very much sorry about uh, her being used in this propaganda clip, uh, but I assure you that if you if you go to Ukraine, if you speak with normal people, with uh, population, with people in the street, you will find a uh, very big preoccupation. Uh, and of course, some people have been, uh, some children have been raised already with this Maidan atmosphere when Ukraine has all of a sudden become anti-Russia instead of being Ukraine. But majority of people, they still have common sense and what they want, they of course want to live in an independent country, which we do not question, but they, they want to have good and neighborly relations with, with Russia. And that would be the worst possible scenario for the US if, if Ukraine and Russia become friends and good neighbors again. So that's why I think they are ready to do everything uh, to, to, to simmer, to keep this, uh, this problem simmering and to prevent uh, our two countries, uh, our two peoples, uh, to become uh, good neighbors again. Ambassador, I know you have to go in about five minutes. So we have just, I think, two more questions and okay. a large, huge amount of viewers. So if you can stay, we'll, we'll try to be brief. Aaron, go ahead. Sure. Let me ask you about the role of the Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline. There's a lot of bipartisan clamor inside Washington to sanction the pipeline now to basically revive the sanctions that Trump had trying to stop 
the construction of the Nord Stream 2, which Biden backed off from when he came back into office. But now Biden himself is also talking about shutting down Nord Stream 2 if Russia invades Ukraine. I'm wondering how much of a factor you think that is in this whole mess. And what would be the impact if the U.S. tried once again to sanction the Nord Stream 2 pipeline into um, oblivion and to, to basically stop it, to stop it from going online? I think that the effect would be not rather not for Russia, but for Europe, first of, first of all, and for Germany, because this will be clear shooting in, in its own uh, foot if uh, Nord Street 2 uh, pipeline is uh, is put on hold, because this is, as uh, it was repeated many times, it's, it's economically very profitable uh, project. Uh, it is uh, very viable uh, economically and technically, and it's uh, complete, and it is for the interests of, of Europe, first and foremost, to get this alternative source of uh, provision of energy uh, from, from the East, which is the cheapest and the easiest. Of course, there is an alternative which the United States would, would like very much to, to happen. It's the liquefied uh, gas from United States, uh, which is much uh, more expensive, but uh, maybe it smells good, but smells better. And as some of the secretaries of energy said, there are molecules of freedom uh, in this liquefied form. <laughs> so I don't comment on this, but of course, everybody understands that uh, this would be a very bad scenario for Europe. You know about the prices, the energy prices that are really roaring in uh, in this part of the world. Uh, as for Russia, well, of course, it wouldn't be pleasant for us uh, because we also had certain investments. But the uh, share of, uh, of gas and oil uh, has diminished significantly during all these years. We have uh, we have all weather all weather round planning in terms of economy and, and budget. So I don't think it will be devastating uh, for Russia. And by the way, we're now we don't we, don't, we do not use this pipeline right now, and we still get our revenues. If it's about totally shutting off uh, Russian supplies to Europe, uh, not on our initiative, of course, but the initiative of the United States. Well, that that might be uh, bad for for us, but I think it would be even worse uh, for Europe. So I, I wouldn't uh, really uh, go into speculations because this is first and foremost the question of, of Europeans, not our question. And it's the question of their relations with uh, with uh, United States and Germany first and foremost. So we feel, we, we hope that there will be enough common sense to withstand this, this pressure and to really distinguish between uh, economic issues and political issues. From an economic point of view, I don't think there are any reproaches to this pipeline uh, and uh, well ukraine is can also have can take hostage of uh, of supplies to europe and it has done so several times uh, so uh, even if you have an alternative uh, source uh, from this perspective this is very good for european energy security well we call it freedom fuel here we send freedom <laughs> fuel over on boats uh okay. it makes people free and warm uh and uh, you know, speaking of Germany, since you, since we've been addressing this, there is a major meeting tomorrow between Russian President Putin and German Chancellor Olaf Scholz. So I wanted to ask you about your your hopes for this meeting. Scholz has just been in Ukraine. I know there are members of his coalition that are more militaristic than him and maybe more green, uh, but. I wanted to ask if you think uh, Schultz's role is a positive one uh, that it could signal perhaps a return somewhat to the Ostpolitik of Willy Brandt uh, with Germany playing a mediating role between the U.S. 
and Moscow, uh, and possibly that it signals a more independent Europe. Well, uh, Germany is a very important country. You know how difficult our relations are historically. And uh, now, uh, I think for many, many years already, we have a uh, good understanding on, on a number of issues. So we really uh, think that uh, Germany is an important player in, in Europe. And it has certain uh, common sense uh, even now in all these uh, times of hysteria that we see about allegations of Russia invasion. Uh, Mr. Scholz is very much welcome in Moscow. We have a lot of things to discuss. Uh, we have always maintained a very fruitful and uh, deep dialogue with all the uh, leaders of Germany, regardless of uh, political situation. So we expect that this will be the case with Mr. Scholz and uh, uh, this will be very important first personal contact uh, in new capacity of, uh, of Chancellor Scholz and President Putin. So in any case, that would that would be a landmark event, uh, and there were contacts between Sergei Lavrov and uh, new foreign minister of, of Germany, Ms. Baerbock, uh, which was also very important. And uh, well, we, we do not see everything uh, through the same optic. That's clear, but uh, we share preoccupations uh, of each other, and we understand. Uh, sometimes the reasoning of our German colleagues and they understand our preoccupations. So Germany can play quite an important role in all this uh, equation, uh, of course, provided if it, uh, it, if it uh, pursues the policy that uh, is based on its own interest or on the interests of Europe and not uh, from the point of view of transatlantic solidarity, which is very often uh, being uh, pro being promoted at the expense of Europe and the expense of, of, of Germany. But it's up to Germans to decide. It takes two to tango, so we are ready. Well, Ambassador, we've kept you way over time, so we'll let you go. We really Thank appreciate you your time to speak to us. Yeah. It's rare. Thanks so much for your time. It's rare to see a Russian official speak at length to a, a Western audience, so we're really appreciative that we had the opportunity today to hear from you. and hear your perspective. Thank you very much, Max. Again. Thank you very much, Aaron, for your for your efforts. And I'm always ready to, to speak uh, to you, to the others, and my colleagues as well. But it's very difficult sometimes, time-wise, to find such an opportunity because we have a lot of things to do. But in any case, all the best to you, all the best to your viewers. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. And uh, we we don't actually work real jobs where we're on the clock, so we can find time to meet with pretty much any official uh, at any hour, at least I can, um, as a as a laptop class trader. Um, <laughs> if uh, Jake Sullivan wants to come on. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Jake Sullivan found time during the 2016 campaign to personally denounce me on behalf of Hillary Clinton. I think I was the only American denounced by both the Trump and Clinton campaigns uh, with Trump's uh, ambassador to Israel, David Friedman, calling me the worst anti-Semite in the world. So, uh, but I just wanted to address uh, us hosting Dmitry Polyansky, uh, the deputy ambassador to the UN. Um, I think that part of the role of the, or the, one of the main roles of the gray zone is to break the media blockade and to present the news that they, and we know who they are, don't want you to hear or present perspectives that are not welcome in US media that are important. And you made this point privately to me, Aaron, like two weeks ago, that US media just won't 
allow the Russian perspective on US TV. And that is all about war propaganda. Because even if Americans don't agree with the Russian point of view, if they can hear it, be allowed to make up their own mind, it might you know, raise questions that need to be raised in Congress as well and raised at the highest level, but that's not happening. So that's, that's what our role is here. And I'm really glad that so many people have been watching and I think they benefited from hearing that point of view. And as I mentioned, we also hosted someone, Russell Bentley, who fought in the Donbass, who is fighting in the Donbass, living there, who is an American foreign fighter who has moved. And it's worth checking that video out to understand the point of view of the Russian speaking population there who believe that they will be subjected to genocide if the Ukrainian forces are allowed to overrun their republics. Uh, this Ukraine crisis, whatever you want to call it, underscores to me just how far mainstream liberalism on matters of war and peace has shifted to the right, where, as you say, on television, I mean, the idea of having a Russian official speaking is, I mean, forget it, but even having a, a voice who's not pro-war, pro-Cold War, you just don't find that on the Sunday news shows. And even in progressive media, you know, the people who do speak out, they have to kind of couch the language by catering to all the talking points. And, you know, on that point, I want to talk to you about that, Max, because I really think we're still seeing the lingering impacts of Russiagate. I mean, you can you can draw a direct line between Russiagate and this Ukraine crisis. And one of the ways in which it's had an adverse impact is just everybody on the progressive side, like just looking at Congress, feels a need to still cater to the underlying propaganda. So, for example, Bernie Sanders wrote, and Bernie Sanders and likely his foreign policy advisor, Matt Dust, wrote an op-ed in The Guardian last week. That I thought it was better than everybody else. They were talking about Russia, respecting Russia's concerns about NATO expansion, which you will not hear almost anyone else in Washington say. But they felt the need at the start to basically declare that the the, the major the the the, the uh, sole responsibility or major responsibility for this whole Ukraine crisis lies with Vladimir Putin. No mention at all, just not at all, of the coup, of the fact that the U.S., many of the same people now running Biden's policy, including Biden himself, played a critical role in the Maidan coup in 2014. And it's not controversial. John McCain, Chris Murphy flew over there, met with far-right figures, celebrated them. There's that leaked phone call of Victoria Nuland and the U.S. ambassador to Ukraine choosing who will be the next prime minister of Ukraine. Yats is the guy, as Nuland put it. And Yats, Yatsenyuk, became the prime minister a few weeks later. So just the fact that Bernie, in speaking out against all this, still feels the need to cater to so much of the propaganda used to sustain it, to the point where he can't even mention the U.S. role in the Maidan coup, speaks to the power of Russiagate propaganda, where this, you know, this climate where if you tell the facts, if you express the truth, then you're accused of uh, spouting uh, Russian disinformation and being an apologist for Putin, all that stuff. And so it, it just struck me that, and I think you can see the tepid response of progressives in Congress, it's a direct consequence of them doing things like getting behind that impeachment in 2019, 2020, when Trump was impeached after he froze some military weapons to Ukraine and everybody, Bernie and all the progressives got behind it. So now they're in a strange position where now they're recognizing how dangerous this policy is of flooding Ukraine with weapons, but they've already gotten on board with the underlying agenda, which makes them even weaker in trying to challenge it. Yeah, uh, we were attacked during the Russiagate era as Trump sympathizers or even Trump supporters for raising issues about 
Russia Gate's long-term implications. And now here we are. I think it's one of those times where we're proven right because something horrible is happening. And you know, I went on the only mainstream national show in America that will allow you to say any of this to a national audience, Tucker Carlson, to make exactly that point, uh, which is that Russia Gate is part of a new Cold War that will possibly lead us to a hot war. And it'd also be devastating for the anti-war left. It'll be bad for the anti-war left because of censorship, demonization, further marginalization. Um, I, you know, I've been proven right. And I, of course, you know, you get attacked for going on Tucker, but you know, when's Chris Hayes going to have us on? Um, but there's more to it than Russia gate. I mean, what Russia gate really was, was the confluence of two dominant forces within the democratic party and, um, the bureaucratic infrastructure of the national security state. And you have the hardcore, anti-Russian militarists of John Brennan, the Michael Haydens, the, uh, you know, all of these figures that have been hovering that, that are kind of, uh, are, that were anti-Trump as well. And then you had the Hillary Clinton dead enders pushing it just as an excuse for her defeat. But it was really the, the neocons and the securitocrats who are the real danger here. And they were continuing a process that had been underway for several, for several years since it dawned on the national security states, honchos in Washington, that Russia was no longer the weak, sick, little vassal state they wanted it to be in the 1990s. So where this actually started, what it, and, and Ambassador Polyansky brought it up, was with the response to the Russian response to the Georgian invasion of South Ossetia. Uh, Mikhail Saakashvili was a CIA project. He was being coached by this guy, Bruce Jackson, who was like just straight out of Washington neocon culture. Saakashvili, Lockheed Martin executive. Lockheed executive. They wanted to sell arms to Georgia. Bring Head of the committee to, to NATO. expand NATO. Yeah, there you go. Perfect uh, example of what this was all about. Saakashvili got ahead of himself. I don't think Jackson and company wanted him to invade South Ossetia, majority Russian-speaking population, but he... He was kind of a, a, a renegade, wound up eating his tie on national TV. He literally was chewing his tie in fear. So it went very badly for the U.S. And the, the, that's when war fever started to seep in, in in Washington. Vladimir Putin's speech at the Munich Security Conference where John McCain sitting in the front row and Putin brings up Iraq and the attacks on the state sovereignty around the world. And he said, we will not allow this to take place. McCain, you can just see him. He's like, ah! Freaking out. Lieberman's there too. Not happy. The, the Magnitsky Act comes in. It was a set piece for the beginning of the Cold War on Russia, crafted by Bill Browder, international huckster, who gave up his U.S. citizenship to avoid paying taxes, cashed in in Russia, ran away with $300 million, left his accountant, Sergei Magnitsky, holding the bag. He winds up dead in jail in very bad conditions of a heart attack. And Browder pays off all these people in Congress uh, through his allies, let, lead, um, starting with Ben Cardin, the you know senator from Maryland, to craft these sanctions based on the Russian killing of Sergei Magnitsky, who was going to uncover the massive uh, corruption of Putin. And I mean, Browder still, he, he was such a huge figure like in Russiagate. That's when Browder came out to the public as a Russian expert and no one knew the real story. And then you have at the same time, Michael McFall, 
uh, he was he had been the ambassador to Moscow. It's McFall who really helped uh, craft the image in Washington of Russia as this malign force that needs to be contained constantly, and that it can actually be brought under the heel of the U.S. through force, which is a delusional fantasy. And McFall created conflict in Moscow by taking all of the opposition leaders and bringing them in to the U.S. embassy uh, for some meet and greet, and the Russian media shows up, photographs all of them. I mean, it would be like if the Russian or Chinese embassy hosted Black Lives Matter and the truckers convoy at the embassy today. Uh, how would U.S. media react? So McFall is still out there. He's constantly, every day in U.S. media, spouting insane commentary. I mean, let me read you. It's really stupid. I mean, he's one of the, I can't believe this guy teaches, or I guess I can believe he teaches at Stanford. I don't have the tweet in front of me because he deleted it, but he said this three days ago. During the Cold War, do you remember when Washington told Moscow that you can't have military ties with Cuba, a country 100 miles from our border? You can't because it never happened. So that's a look into the mind of Michael McFall, who is seminal in dictating the perspective that Democrats in Washington or the Obama administration and the Biden administration uphold towards Moscow. Now the Biden people are back in the White House. They brought half the Obama administration back in. Jake Sullivan, he was basically Hillary's de facto campaign manager. He's at the head of the NSC. So all of these elements, I think, have cohered and come together to uh, to to uh, to make a kind of a, a toxic brew of Cold War hysteria to generate this kind of witch's cauldron of Cold War hysteria in Washington. And I don't know how these figures are going to de-escalate after bringing things to the brink of crisis. And then you have Syria too, right? Uh, just this past Saturday was the 10 year anniversary of Jake Sullivan writing to Hillary Clinton, his boss at the time, Al Qaeda is on our side in Syria. And you had in Syria, Russia interrupting uh, the Obama administration's regime change operation by coming in on the side of the Syrian government. And in the words of John Kerry in the clip we play all the time on the gray zone, John Kerry saying that said that Russia came in because they didn't want an ISIS government. And the U.S. was watching back and basically using ISIS as a tool of leverage, using ISIS's advance on Damascus as a tool of leverage to force Assad to negotiate his way out of power in place of a U.S.-backed uh, puppet. And Russia interfered with that plan by coming in on the intervention and, and tipping the scales on the side of Syria. So all that has fueled this animus inside Washington toward Russia on top of them uh, fighting back in Georgia and fighting back with, after the Maidan coup by seizing Crimea. So, yeah, I agree with you. I don't know. I don't know what the off ramp is. And, um, you know, I wanted to say people in the chat pointing out that the agenda of people like Tucker Carlson and other people on the right who are speaking out more forcefully on the prospect of of war in, in Ukraine and, and speaking out against expansion of NATO, that their agenda is they want to focus U.S. hostility towards China. And I agree with that. And that's why it's all the more of a reason for the left not to be ceding the anti-war platform to the right. But when it comes to at least to a cold war with Russia, that is exactly what the left has done. And that's why it's all the more important for leftists to speak out against the cold war with anybody, whether it's Russia or China. Well, what they've done, the Trump administration adopted this, this thinking, and it was kind of like old school Kissingerian thinking that didn't recognize 
where the leadership of either country was historically, economically, or militarily. And what it's done is created not a multipolar world, but I think at this point, a bipolar world where Russia and China are working together more closely than ever before, despite their historic, very deep conflicts. Um, it's a fantasy. And I think the democratic establishment upholds this view as well. Uh, they just they just can't get over their obsession with Russia and this really failed project in Ukraine. I mean, there are so many interests there. It's not just Hunter Biden. Uh, remember Evelyn Farkas went uh, to, to Ukraine with literal Burisma jackets on. I mean, this was something that they just deeply believed in. And just to explain they, who she is, she was a former Pentagon official under Obama, right? Yeah, yeah, who ran for Congress in New yeah. York. And then the yeah. pictures came out of her in a Burisma jacket touring Burisma oil fields. It's like, I mean, these, but she's a, a major figure in the Democratic foreign policy establishment. I mean, what they, they saw Ukraine kind of as, uh, I mean, you actually, if you think about the neocons as well, the Jamie Kerchicks and the, the newer generation of neocons, they kind of gave up on Israel. They don't talk about it that much. They got really into Ukraine after Maidan, and they thought this was going to be the beginning of the toppling of Putin to the point where Carl Gershman, the head of the National Endowment for Democracy, felt emboldened to publish a literal call for regime change in Moscow in the Washington Post and the Washington Post saw it. And it's just a, a delusional fantasy. And he called in that op-ed, he called Ukraine the biggest prize for the US. Yeah, the biggest prize. So they're still holding on to that. Um, I, I guess I would ask you where Zelensky is here because it looks like he's pulling away from it and he's getting attacked in Washington. This is Vladimir Zelensky, the Ukrainian president who's pretty unpopular in his own country and is getting pushed and pulled by far right forces by the U S but here he is calling NATO membership a dream. He's telling all these people who are his patrons in Washington that they're just a bunch of delusional dreamers. Well, you know, uh, I mentioned earlier in the, in the interview with the ambassador, that time magazine article that reported that the Zelensky administration conceived the shutting down of these, pro-Russian opposition TV networks as a welcome gift to Biden. So that same reporter, Simon Schuster, just tweeted today this. He says, source close to Zelensky told me the U.S. first warned his team of a Russian invasion last fall, putting the chances at 80 percent. The Ukrainians didn't buy it, but they saw an opportunity, quote, more aid, more attention, unquote, and played along. Now they have regrets, too much attention. So I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know who he spoke to and I can't vouch for whether or not that's true, but if it is true, it speaks to the mindset inside the Zelensky administration. Zelensky ran, ran and won on a pro-peace platform and did a U-turn. And you just have to, I mean, what could explain it but just U.S. pressure? Uh, the Biden administration basically trying to revive the Obama, the initial Obama-Biden uh, coup policy back in 2014 and see it all the way through. I mean, what else could have prompted a pro-peace candidate to take such a, a sharp U-turn and all of a sudden being belligerent and demanding NATO membership and threatening to take back Crimea and the Donbass, but U.S. pressure on him to do so. Well, also just the ultra-nationalist forces in his own country. Right. I mean, yeah. they, they really have the power 
to shut this to they they have the street muscle they have a civil core in kiev they had they had the interior ministry they have the interior ministry uh they are in, they are in, invested by the power of the interior ministry to provide the not just military muscle in the east but the ideological fortitude of Ukrainian forces in the east and Zelensky had to basically bow before them to the point where actually after he visited uh, positions in Donbass in the east late last year a Nazi flag was then flown a third it's a, a literal swastika was flown minutes later by those very forces that he visited. He put on his helmet. This is like a TV comedian who's putting on his helmet to meet ultra-nationalists. He's Jewish. It reminded me kind of like of Mike Dukakis riding around in the M1A1 uh, Abrams tank in the 1988 campaign with a helmet on. It would just looked ridiculous. And then they fly a Nazi flag as a statement, not just to the Russian-speaking population on the other side that they're going to exterminate them, but to him, we run this and you just came to visit us. Uh, and, you know, it was widely reported in U.S. media. Everyone was talking about it. Jacobin did a huge piece denouncing it. Everyone, Rolling Stone, they were all over this Nazi flag. Uh, it just happened to be uh, a random guy in Ottawa and not in Ukraine. So I don't know, maybe if we could get some of these Ukrainian forces in trucks or something, U.S. media might notice it uh, or organizing against mandates. But they seem to be ignoring the fact that even U.S. military uh Trainers, this is another thing that isn't acknowledged, uh, I think, enough about the situation in Ukraine. There are U.S. military trainers on the ground in the east on Russian borders. And I'll throw up a, a photo of this in a second if I can find it. I tweeted about it. They have paid, made pilgrimages to Azov battalion leadership and worn ultranationalist insignia on their own uniforms because they have grown so close to those forces, uh, because they work so closely with them. There have been thousands and thousands of U.S. forces going in and out of Ukraine, in addition to um, what, what would be the figure of arms sales to Ukraine? Like $6 billion, $60 billion? I, I can't even keep track, but massive amounts officially of arms sales. Officially, it's $2.7 billion since 2014. $2.7 billion. Okay, I wouldn't be $60 billion. Uh, two point officially, I think it's higher than that. So what I'm saying is that Ukraine, although it is not officially a NATO country, has basically already been annexed by NATO with the amount of military personnel there and weapons. And I mean, how would the U.S. feel if that was taking place inside Mexico with Chinese with the Chinese military? So that's really what I think is precipitating this crisis. It's not just the push for Ukraine to join NATO. And Zelensky, I mean, he's just, I, 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 don't, I don't even know. It doesn't even matter, honestly, who's, who's president there at this point. I mean, we know who's in charge. Yeah. By the way, Max, we are terrible YouTube guys. When you're a YouTube personality person, you're supposed to ask for likes. You're supposed to ask everyone to smash the like button and we forgot to do that. I just hate saying smash. I know. I, I, hate like, saying I feel like I live in a TikTok house when I say <laughs> that kind of stuff. So, but I am going to ask everyone cuz apparently this benefits us somehow this will help the gray zone. So, ask everyone, we have over 2200 people watching, so please take a moment to like the stream, hit the like button. That will help us. I'm sure that actually will do nothing to help us escape uh, 
the purgatory of, of whatever algorithm or where, where we've been sentenced to, but maybe it will help us like escape the dungeon just a little bit when it comes to the, the algorithm that is suppressing the gray zone. Constantly. Someone said the only like if Max says it. So <laughs> like <laughs> smash that like button. I just feel like a used car salesman. Uh, our algorithm actually, I mean, the algorithm shifted on us in March, 2020. Uh, we did a, like an analysis and it just was like, it was up there. We were, we were, we were, we were experiencing the heights of the gray zone and then just went boop, and it just stayed there and flatlined until now. So March, 2020, I don't know what else happened then. I can't quite remember, but uh, things changed. Um, should we, I, I feel like we should do some of these super chats, address them. If there are any, if there are any that are good, um, let's, let's see what we got here. Thank you, gentlemen. Okay, thank you, Luo Suo, for thanking us. Anything? Uh, yeah, I, I, I don't know if there are any uh, any super chats that we should address. The people anything. saying nice things, we thank you for saying all those nice things. We're just not going to read them because it would, you know, it just looks it looks uh, self-aggrandizing. But if anyone has any questions, we'd be happy to answer them. We got a lot um, of questions. Some of them worth answering, some not. Hundreds of them. I just don't remember what they are because they're so deep yeah. in the chat. Yeah. Um, talk about the gas. Well, I mean, that is a that that is a uh, that is a key issue. I mean, first of all, the New York Times front page right now is about how oil prices will spike if there's a conflict with Russia, and that's clearly guiding U.S. policy we have to remember that when Biden went to COP26, this phony climate change conference, which is basically cover for like the global oligarchy to rustle up uh, new profit centers in renewable energy, uh, he actually made a call to OPEC before he arrived asking Saudi Arabia to open up the taps to increase oil output before arriving at COP26. Why? Because gas prices are out of control, because inflation's up, because midterms are coming up. And Biden openly said, I understand this conflicts, this conflicts with the COP26 agenda, but the American working, the American worker is suffering now. So the Biden administration is simultaneously sanctioning Iran and Venezuela. Venezuela was a major source of oil to the US market until 2015, uh, and especially 2017. So it's been offsetting it quietly, not only with shale, but with oil from Russia. And that could be a serious problem for the Biden administration, which is already set to get wiped out in the 2022 midterms. And we don't even know who's going to succeed Biden if he doesn't run again. So there are political considerations there. Nord Stream 2, the Biden administration has signaled it's kind of going to allow it to go ahead, but I know that it wants to sabotage it. But why would Germany accept LNG, liquefied natural gas, from the United States? I mean, we talked about it with Ambassador Poliansky. Why would it want that when it costs more to produce and it would have to be shipped to Germany, which is a not which is not far from being a neighbor of Russia and would just get it for a much more affordable method? through a pipeline. And Germany last winter faced serious energy uh, problems. 
So the, the, the issue is severe for Germany. It's a matter of national security and economic survival for Germany to make that deal go through. So where does that leave Ukraine or Burisma? Prior to the Maidan, Ukraine was a top importer of Russian liquefied natural gas. And when that became cut off, they, the U.S. started to push local companies like Burisma run by these corrupt oligarchs like the um, uh, Vladimir Zlochevsky, completely like, like a cartoon of a corrupt oligarch, to take control of the market. They wanted to help them export. That's when all the corrupt deals with Hunter Biden and the Atlanta Council came in. And if Nord Stream 2 goes through, goes through the Ukrainian local gas market is going to be destroyed. Uh, so you have all this pressure on Nord Stream 2 coming from the US, but simultaneously you have countervailing pressure on the Biden administration to keep importing oil from Russia. And where does that leave us? I think it leaves us with a whole lot of hot air and rhetoric. And that's not even to speak of the military capacity Russia has to completely destroy any attempts at a military escalation. So by the way, we're at 1.7 thousand likes. So thank you for everyone who liked it. And if that means we have like 500 or so hate watchers, then that's great too. We welcome you. Uh, and thank you for, uh, for coming in. Um, I, with the mute button, I said, welcome Atlantic Council fellows. <laughs> welcome DFR lab. Welcome senior fellows across the think tank world. You're all welcome. Um, well, look, we had some more clips that we had that we could play. Uh, there's that exchange, Max, where you can where you question Mike Carpenter, who's now working for Biden, about him parading a uh, neo-Nazi leader around Washington. You remember that? Max, you're muted. Yeah, this is classic. Um, Carpenter is a lot closer to Biden than we realize and is a real fanatic. Let's play this clip. Okay. Uh, let me just get it up here. One second. I believe, isn't Carpenter now, isn't he the representative to the OSCE? Isn't that his job? Yeah. And that's where, Michael so that's Carpenter where I'm asking the ambassador about this. Um, that's where, uh, that that's this important monitoring mission that the U.S. has pulled its observers from uh, in the Donbass, in, in eastern Ukraine. Uh, and now this guy, Mark Car Mike Carpenter, who we're about to hear from, now he is, it's his job to be Biden's representative there, which is, makes the situation even more scary. So, yeah, he's the U.S. ambassador to the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, which is basically one of these U.S. mechanisms for keeping Europe under its boot and make and, and, and keeping Europe in conflict with Russia. That's part of the transatlantic. Uh, that's that's like a, a, a key component, a linchpin of the transatlantic relationship. So. This is this is Carpenter and uh, and Biden in the in the notorious clip where Biden brags about firing the attorney general. Uh, but I confronted him in Washington when he came to town to 
usher around the founder of two, I would say, ultra-nationalist parties in Ukraine who has possibly been involved in war crimes. Um, but All right, thanks for the correction. I, I don't want to mislabel anyone as a neo-Nazi if they're not. So ultra-nationalist. All right, so let's let's watch this clip. Did you think it was a good idea to bring Peruby, who's founded two neo-Nazi parties, to the Senate? Well, I called him neo-Nazi. Look, I think uh, Andre Parubi is a uh, conservative uh, nationalist who is a, also a patriot, cares about his country. I don't think he has any neo-Nazi neo uh, uh, inclinations uh, nor background. I mean, a lot has been made of this. Frankly, I think it's uh, mostly Russian propaganda. So. I don't think there's anything troubling about his views. Uh, I think his views that he's articulated now uh, are on the record and uh, support, as I said, reconciliation with Poland. Uh, freedom and sovereignty for Ukraine, and I think that's a positive thing. And anti-Semitism in Ukraine. He didn't want did that you... one. <laughs> yeah, he did not. And um, I actually, during that same meeting, um, which was hosted by an ultra-conservative foreign policy hand named Herman Pinchner, uh, I asked Andre Perubi about his founding of the Social National Party and the Patriot of Ukraine. The Patriot of Ukraine was the street wing that's been involved in brutal attacks on migrants in Ukraine, uh, videotaped attacks that they openly take credit for. He founded both of them. His, his, uh, his memoir shows him in like a literal brown suit with a tie and a pistol on his waist. And like a, his head is like he's got his hair shaved really close and he just looks like a brown shirt. Uh, and he he became the speaker of the Ukrainian Rada, the Ukrainian parliament. So Carpenter brings him to town. You've got the bl the blue brown alliance in Washington going on where the Democrats work with the like extreme right that opposes all their geopolitical enemies. And uh, they can't account for it. He's a conservative nationalist, blah, blah, blah. And Carpenter proceeded to attack me a lot on Twitter after that in a very childish and petulant way. And he called me like a scumbag and a Russian Kremlin tool and all, blocked me. Now it appears that he's unblocked me. Uh, but he, you know, he behaves like a not just a fanatic. Uh, Moss Robeson, who's a contributor to the Gray Zone, focuses exclusively on Ukrainian the, the role of the Ukrainian ultra-nationalist lobby in in the U.S., the OUNB lobby. Uh, he's documented Carpenter appearing at several OUNB talks. That's the former Nazi collaborationist army that now, and, and political force and political party that now has its tentacles in the Ukrainian lobby around the world. So Carpenter maintains still as a Biden administration official close ties to those elements. And, you know, you think about the kind of, the kind of people that are there, you wonder where would we be? And that was actually something I forgot to ask ambassador. I'm, I'm sure he, I don't know if he would have been able to answer it directly. That was something I wanted to ask ambassador Polanski. Would we be in a different place if Trump were president here? I mean, well, look, I thought about that question a lot because I was among those dupes, I suppose, who were saying that a Biden administration would be less likely to, uh, you know, escalate conflict with Russia. And my the big the big, you know, thing that I stuck to was that Biden was at least supporting renewing New Start, the last remaining treaty limiting the nuclear weapon stockpiles of both the U.S. and Russia, whereas Trump was effectively trying to kill it. 
But and if Trump was going to keep on Mike Pompeo, would Mike Pompeo be doing anything differently now? I doubt it. But if Trump was going to, you know, clear house, as some people do in the second administration and get uh, new personnel, then, yeah, you can make an argument that that quite possibly we would not be in the situation we are in now. Because, look, Victoria Newland, former aide to Dick Cheney, her husband, what's his name? Robert Kagan, PNAC guy. Yeah, it's amazing. She She's maybe the, the top sort of running point for Biden on Ukraine. I mean, this was, yeah, Dick Cheney's, what, deputy chief of staff, chief yeah. of staff, appointed, uh, promoted by Dick Cheney, her husband, Robert Kagan, authored with Bill Kristol, the Project for a New American Century's blueprint for benevolent hegemony for the U.S. to control the world as a benevolent dictator. She was involved in the Maidan coup at the highest level. And she was also involved in the Steele dossier. That's right. She was. Yes, she was. How, she, how so? Well, she authorized. So the FBI's. It's this is so funny. And I wrote about this recently. The FBI's cover story is that the Steele dossier played no role whatsoever in influencing the opening of the Trump-Russia investigation. Meanwhile, in the weeks before the FBI officially opened up the Trump-Russia investigation, you had all these FBI officials receiving the Steele dossier, talking about the Steele dossier, and the official who authorized an FBI agent to fly from his post in Rome to go to London to meet with Christopher Steele in early July, July 5th, 2016, was Victoria Nuland. Victoria Nuland authorized uh, an FBI agent to go from his post. He, he was working at, at an embassy to go fly and meet with Steele personally and talk to him about his allegations. And Nuland then received some material from Steele and said that we, this should go to the FBI. But yet the FBI wants us to believe that none of these contacts and none of these efforts to get Steele's information to the FBI influenced any of the people who actually opened up the Trump-Russia probe. It's so ridiculous. And yes, um, Victoria Nuland is among those who should be questioned under oath about it. She's spoken about it in the media and she's given some interviews, but I think she should, you know, among many people should be questioned under oath. Well, where does the Steele dossier fit within the current moment? Like, how do, how do, you, how do you think it helped inspire this? Well, it was came from the Clinton campaign, Obviously, they generated it. And the Clinton campaign is a part of that camp that had a major role in the Ukraine crisis right now. There, and remember this, uh, Lev Golinkin, our friend who writes for The Nation magazine sometimes, he's written about that actually Ukrainians interfered in the 2016 election. And for all the you know, fear-mongering about foreigners interfering in our election, um, Ukrainians actually interfered in a pretty significant way when they leaked information about Paul Manafort, some of which I think was false such as this Black Ledger thing, that which led to his firing. So you had a heavy role of Ukraine in 2016. And it comes up again, actually, you know, that phone call between Trump and Zelensky that got Trump impeached the first time. Trump, the first thing Trump asked Zelensky about is not investigating Joe Biden. That comes near the end. He asked him about CrowdStrike and the DNC server, because there is this theory that actually the hackers, if there were hackers who stole emails from the DNC, actually originated in Ukraine. And there is, you know, this is documented, one of the DNC staffers who received a spear phishing email, it did, according to Google, it did actually come from Ukraine or, you know, or at least it was made to appear as if it came from Ukraine. So there is a heavy Ukraine tie here. And yeah, the Clinton campaign there and that whole camp, they're all deeply 
tied into all this. And, you know, the Steel dossier could be seen in the same way that Br- Britain is being a lackey right now for the U.S. and in, in, uh, ratcheting up tensions with Russia. The Steel dossier could be seen as yet another effort as a part of that to basically undertake an action that would further damage diplomacy with Russia and damage a candidate who was at the time calling for better relations with Russia. Yeah. And I loved how it unraveled. It unraveled in in the Wall Street Journal. I mean, one of the papers that helped push it. Uh, I mean, it unraveled in mainstream media with steel sources being exposed as complete frauds. Yeah. And we're still learning more now. There's uh, there's more happening in the in the Durham investigation uh, that, that is still happening. And hopefully, hopefully they'll get to the source. Hopefully Durham will address the actual the issue at the heart of this whole thing, which is the allegation that Russia stole the emails, because that's where Russiagate effectively kicks off. And I hope he does. He does get to that. Um, should we take uh, any more super chats or uh, if we have any? I mean, we got what? What do we got? Some. What can you say to the difference between the Cuban Missile Crisis and the Ukraine Crisis? And uh, what do we got? You were doing the devil's work. I guess that is another. That's a compliment. I guess. <laughs> if you like, the, if you're if you if you're into the devil, yeah. If you're, if you're one of these Satanists, yes. If you want to go to hell like Biggie, <laughs> like Biggie Smalls, uh, or if I sound too much like Ari Melber, if I quote him, uh, <laughs> he ruined that. So he ruined hip hop references. He ruined it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, he ruined like not just hip hop references. Like I can't listen to '90s hip hop anymore because of Ari Melber. But it's like just taking something great and just. Anyway, Michael, what can you say to the difference between the Cuban Cuban Missile Crisis and the Ukraine crisis, if any? Well, Cuba is 90 miles from Miami, maybe 90 kilometers from Miami. It was much more strategic for the Soviet Union to place missiles there than to place troops on the Ukrainian border. Russia can always reach Europe with ballistic missiles. It could also reach the U.S., but it was really the effect that it had. And why did they do that? Why did they do that? This is something that, for some reason, Americans never learn. And it helps understand. It, help, it would help them understand Syria, for example, and why Russia intervened in Syria. It placed missiles in Cuba. Nikita Khrushchev placed missiles in Cuba to prevent a U.S. invasion of a sovereign socialist country uh, where the U.S. was openly plotting to assassinate its revolutionary leader. And so the Soviet Union did that as an obligation. And we should also remember that Fidel Castro was originally sort of a nationalist who reached out to Dwight Eisenhower for help on refining oil and importing oil and was rejected and turned to the Soviet Union for practical reasons. So it was about deterrence and through the negotiation with JFK, which actually took place um, secretly in many respects, Pierre Salinger, one of JFK's aides, brought a note handwritten by JFK to Khrushchev in a book, uh, hidden in a book because JFK was over, was being um, suffocated by what Donald Trump would go on to call the deep state and, uh, this led to the U.S. being forced to end future plans for another Bay of Pigs. 
that's very, I think that's, it actually is more similar to the Syrian situation where the Russian presence was intended to prevent a government from falling that had a relationship with Moscow and to prevent the destabilization of a region or maybe Russian assistance to Venezuela. Russia flew two supersonic bombers to Caracas at one point in a message to the U.S. that had more to, uh, more similarities with those than I think Ukraine, where with Ukraine, you have a former Soviet Republic where there used to be the capital of Russia, Sevastopol, only warm water port in Russia, key strategic location, absolutely key for the Russian Navy and Russian commerce. Crimea, for majority Russian-speaking population, voting 80 to 90% to be annexed. And then you have those two republics in Donbass who are you know, up against it with ultranationalist forces on the other side of their borders. So it's really a situation for Russia. I, I would say Ukraine is a, a for Russia a defensive conflict uh, and a war about national national survival. I believe the thinking within the Russian security apparatus is that if a NATO state arrives that close to Russia's doorstep with so much historical significance, it will mean that Russia will be entrenched in endless grinding conflict that will slowly wear down its economic and human potential not and and likely lead to a devastating military conflict. And so that's really where the U.S. is coming from here. It's that McFall thinking about containment. What is containment? Containment was conceived by George Kennan at the, or during the early stages of the Cold War. By, and it essentially means instead of rollback, pushing for some crazy regime change operation in Russia, you surround Russia with military bases, you blockade it economically, and you create, in Kennan's words, a pressure cooker effect inside Russia where the society begins to sort of wither away and become demoralized and unstable, and it puts pressure on the leadership to negotiate their demise. And some people believe that strategy worked when Gorbachev essentially negotiated away after Afghanistan and the oil crisis and the Soviet Union. I think that thinking still prevails in Washington, although we know it's discredited. So well, long answer, of, short question. Yeah. Well, speaking of the prevailing thinking in Washington, I, I want to take people on a little trip back down memory lane just to for a window into the Cold War insanity that the Russiagate, Ukraine gate, anti-Trump era normalized that in the name of combating Trump, Hawks and the Democratic Party normalized the most just deranged Cold War chauvinism of my lifetime, at least, or at least since the uh, Reagan years. So this is um, Jason Crow, who was one of the House impeachment managers during the first Trump impeachment trial. And I want to play for you what he what he said. Uh, okay, where is it? There it is. This is the guy who will go ahead. Delivering health care. Go ahead, Max. Well, this is the Democrat who co-sponsored legislation with Liz Cheney on uh, keeping U.S. troops in Afghanistan forever. Just some context. And that was after the Russian bounty scam, right? Right. That, yeah. that was all timed perfectly with that scam. So go ahead. Vladimir Putin could care less about delivering health care for the people of Russia 
for building infrastructure in Russia. Vladimir Putin, as many people in this chamber know well, because I've worked with some of you on this, wakes up every morning and goes to bed every night trying to figure out how to destroy American democracy. And he has organized the infrastructure of his government around that effort. Vladimir Putin. So if you couldn't hear that, Jason Crow says that Vladimir Putin goes to bed and wakes up thinking about how he can destroy American democracy. And he's organized his entire government around that. Let me wait, 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 wait. And he, he doesn't he doesn't deliver health care to Russians. What about <laughs> our government? <laughs> That's true. Yeah, 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 exactly. As opposed to us. And, and by the way, Putin's uh, infrastructure plan was basically torpedoed by, uh, you know, the pandemic economy. So there was a infrastructure plan. But anyway. And one more short but sweet clip from fan favorite Adam Schiff. The United States aids Ukraine and her people so that we can fight Russia over there and we don't have to fight Russia here. <laughs> That's what like the Bush, like the really dumb Bush supporters said it after 9-11. I mean, exactly right. Exactly right. Yeah. They yeah. just so, internalized, uh, you know, the Democrats have just like absorbed the first Bush term. So like if you're- Third coming of the first Bush term. If you have anxiety over right now the threat of war breaking out between Ukraine and Russia, at least know that Adam Schiff and his colleagues are preventing Russia from invading us over here by fighting Russia over there. So thank you, Adam Schiff, for keeping us safe. The, probably the truest thing that Donald Trump ever said was Adam shit. <laughs> <laughs> I really miss that guy's Twitter account, by the way. RIP. <laughs> RIP. Um, I, when, when is a when is a president ever going to retweet me again? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. And what did you ch you change your account name? That was like an epic trolling move. You were like fire imprison Jared or something like that. No, I was like, like fire Jared. I wanted to imprison Pompeo. Imprison Pompeo. Oh, yeah, Pompeo to the ICC. Yeah, I mean, yeah, exactly. Um, you know, I was trying to appeal to Trump actually. I was like, you know that, and he, you know, he agreed with me. You, you uh, although I, I don't know what his relationship with Jared is like, but I, I can't imagine Donald Trump like hitting it off with Jared. I can see him hitting it off with Herschel Walker. I can see him hitting off with Jeffrey Epstein. I can't see Jared. <laughs> but, uh, he's loyal to his daughter, who he said that he wanted to make love to at one point. So <laughs> that's probably it. Um, but yeah. Adam Schiff is what is Adam Schiff doing right now? January sixth. Like, January. It's 6th. all January sixth, along with Jamie Raskin. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of off topic, but Jamie Raskin's a peculiar figure. Like you really see, he's a constitutional lawyer. Adam Schiff, he was a prosecutor. He's like made for this, and he's supported yeah. by uh, the arms industry. He had like even Ukrainian nationalist supporters. But Jamie Raskin, he comes from Tacoma Park, Maryland, and he, uh, which is the most liberal district in Washington outside of Berkeley. I grew up on the other side of DC from there. And, you know, going to Tacoma Park, it was an anti nuclear zone in the 80s. There were anti war signs everywhere. Everyone had Volvos with anti war stickers. And then in comes Jamie Raskin, and he becomes one of the biggest Russia gators. And now he's dedicating his whole career to January 6th. Um, 
says has said nothing about the biggest attack on the First Amendment of our lifetimes in the prosecution of Julian Assange. And so I think what Jamie Raskin represents is something more insidious than Adam Schiff, which is just where liberalism has gone. In this district, you no longer see anti-war stickers. The closest thing you saw to it was maybe 14 years ago, you saw people driving around with Obama peace sign stickers on their Priuses, completely delusional. So who who is opposing this in Congress, Aaron? Uh, are any members of the squad opposing this push for a potential nuclear war? Ilhan Omar put out a press release last week that, you know, it was it wasn't great, but it was better than nothing, I suppose. It was still kind of catering to the narrative that all this is Putin's fault, and but it's not going to help to send more weapons. The kind of sort of mealy mouth standard uh, progressive Democratic congressional line. Um, but she did say some things about not sending more weapons, which I suppose is a good thing. I don't remember if she talked about NATO expansion like Bernie did. But yeah, no, the, the, the answer in short is they're completely absent except for a, a press release that no one reads or, or cares about. Same with the same with the Progressive Caucus. Um, Barbara Lee and Pramila Jayapal put out a press release, but just them signing it, nobody else in, in the Progressive Caucus. And again, back during the impeachment, at the time, Pramila Jayapal was saying what a terrible thing Trump had done by freezing this weapons uh, uh, sale to Ukraine because they needed to stand up to Russian aggression. So they all bought into all the Cold War propaganda, and now they're in a really difficult position to try to challenge it if they actually, if, even if they actually wanted to. Yeah, I mean, I saw some of the protests that were organized, and it's good that people were out there in the cold, um, but they were pretty small. Um, much smaller than the protests after Qasem Soleimani was killed. Um, mm. Those were pretty spirited. And the Democrats had their own like official separate protest organized by Move On, which has since like been really doing important work for the American worker and everyone who's hard hit by inflation and all the people around the world who are facing um, the threat of war by putting out a petition against Joe Rogan. That's really important work by Move On. Um, really speaks to the tr the struggles people are going through. Um, but yeah, yeah, it's, it's very dispiriting. And I think that's also the legacy of Russiagate is the, as I predicted when I went on Tucker in 2017, it will weaken opposition to war with Russia by design, by design. There's so much self-censorship around it still, where people are afraid of being called Kremlin shills. So um, Aaron, I don't know if there's anything else you want to add. I need to jump off soon. Yeah, no, I'll, I'll just say, but yes, sure, the anti-war movement has been weakened, but liberals did turn out to save Jeff Sessions' job when Trump <laughs> fired him. So there is that. Not, not just liberals, Aaron. The Revolutionary Communist Party of Bob Avakian protested the firing <laughs> really? of Jeff Sessions. I forgot that. There we <laughs> go. There we go. Another another uh, fruit from the Russiagate tree. Yeah, I saw like this one guy from Occupy. I'm trying to think of his name now. He actually got arrested for Jeff Sessions. So. <laughs> oh, man. All right. Well, yeah. to everyone who tuned in, thank you so much for joining us. We'll try to do more of these. Thank you for liking the stream. Our like numbers really shot up. So thank you for everyone for that. And yeah, my, uh, my self-esteem really shot up because, you know, <laughs> I judge myself based on likes and my self-worth is based on retweets. So. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs>
Well, that's someone just asked, point. "What do I think of Sarah Kenzior's work?" So it's definitely time to get the hell out of here. <laughs> Does she exist anymore? That's like a great yeah. authoritarian expert, Sarah Kenzior. <laughs> All those people are somehow still around. They I remember they when she accused Salon.com of trying to murder her. Like that. Do you remember I that? that one. I missed oh, that man. one. Anyway, uh, yeah. Stay safe, everybody. Like, what am I supposed to say to close out a stream? <laughs> well, we do hope everyone stays safe and, um, you know, and, and keep tuning into the gray zone. We'll do more. We have, uh, I have some more reporting on the OPCW scandal coming very soon. And we really appreciate everybody's support uh, as, uh, as we roll on. Peace. Peace.